And uh, then we are looking forward to a summer series that we're going to do. We're going to be going through the minor prophets. Um, Now, I wanted to call the series Majoring on the Minors, but I was outvoted by the rest of the staff. So we will think of some sort of uh, name for the series that's far better than that. But uh, we encourage you to uh, maybe look ahead. Go into that clean part of the Old Testament, you know, because you don't thumb through it too much. And look into the Minor Prophets, a lot of important teaching there that we'll be getting into. But for today, let's look at Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11, and of course that is what the scripture reading shared with us. Selfie. Now that's a term that I hate to admit, but I didn't know what it was just a few years ago. And somebody used the term, a younger person, of course, around me. And I said, what in the world is a selfie? So they explained to me that it's, you know, taking your smartphone with the camera and putting it up. They even have selfie sticks now, I guess, where you can put it on a stick to get a little wider shot. And I started thinking about selfies, you know. They can come off as maybe a little bit narcissistic, but harmless, really, right? Well, not if you look at the numbers. Do you realize that there are more deaths from selfies than from shark attacks? Now, I decided to combine that story with an important picture. (laughs) I thought it'd be cool to have a selfie with a shark attack. And then you can combine both numbers. But understand this. The selfies that we take are almost a commentary on our society. We want to interject ourselves and put ourselves in the middle of everything and then parade that information about ourselves before everyone. In some ways, if we're not careful, a selfie can become like what Jesus described of the Pharisees, where the Pharisees would go to the streets and hold out their hands in prayer and draw attention to themselves so that everyone could see how spiritual they were. Or they could go into the temple, and as they were preparing to give, the receptacle for giving had a large brass apparatus on top of it that you could either slide your coins into or whip it in there and sound the trumpet as you gave so that everybody could see what you're doing. Sometimes selfies can be that. Now, I recognize that selfies can also be a way to stay connected, to communicate what you're doing, to keep up with one another, and it's fine in that sort of situation, but it can be self-serving, hence the term selfie. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of that kind of mindset. As human beings, isn't it easy to buy in to a selfie world? The kind of concept where I'm at the center of everything, look at me. We can come to the place to where we are constantly drawing attention to ourselves because we're looking for that attention It's something that we really get into. So we'll live a life that will draw as much glory and attention to ourselves as we can possibly get. 
And that's the kind of life that we want to avoid. That kind of life is not profitable. What we find in the scripture this morning are two approaches to life. One is a life that is lived in service to God and in service to others. And that sort of life is a life that benefits other people. It's profitable. But then we're going to see another kind of life. The kind of life that uses people and manipulates them so that you can have your way and become very important in the mix of the group that you're in. That's the kind of life that we want to avoid. It is unprofitable. So first, let's look at doing what's profitable. And what we're going to find as we look into this text is the importance that we as believers need to place on living a life that benefits other people and doing what's good. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes about this, he tells us that we need to even devote ourselves to doing what is good. So look at that eighth verse. This is a trustworthy statement. And I want to stress to you these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now the scripture is sharing with us a look back on the entire book of Titus so far, when he starts out this eighth verse with, this is a trustworthy statement, and I want to stress these things to you. To what do these things refer in this verse? What they refer to is everything that Paul has been communicating throughout the first three chapters of Titus. He's communicating to us the importance of understanding that God is a God of grace, And that God, as the God of grace and love, extended to us salvation. When we were sinful, when we were selfish, when we were totally disinterested in the things of God or in other people, God reached out to us right where we were and lovingly extended to us the opportunity to experience forgiveness and to come into a relationship with Him through the Son. God did what was good, and he extended that which is good to us. We have also seen in the book of Titus that as believers, because God is good, we as his followers should pursue what is good. And what is good is what God has revealed in his word. It shares with us the kind of people that we ought to be. And the beauty of the believer doing what is good is this. In doing what is good, you're not on your own. You don't just have to just sort of hang on, grit your teeth, and say, I'm going to do good if it kills me. We can understand that God empowers us to do that which is good by the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts, into our lives, transforming us, and making us the kind of people who will do good as God has defined it. In fact, we've looked in Scripture, and we've seen some important verses that talk about how God has created us as new creations in Him to do that which is good. Look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus. Now that's talking about our conversion, that moment that we trusted Christ. We are converted and we are created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the life that God has called us to. Now, often we will look and we'll say, hey, that's a great message, Pastor. I will automatically do good without any effort. Wrong. Understand that while God has created in us a life that is changed and that will do good, we need to get with the program and bend our will to God's will and follow what God calls us to do. There's another important passage of Scripture, and that's Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And it says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. There are two extremes that we can hit when it comes to doing good and seeing our lives become holy lives. One extreme says this, I let go and I let God. And when God moves me to do something, then I'll do it, but not until. My favorite hymn is, I shall not be moved. And this is where I stand, and this is where I'll continue to stand. Then there's the other side. I do it all. I just grit and try, and I'm duty-bound to follow God. I will obey if it kills me. I'm doing what God says, and I am so committed to it that I'm the one that sees to it. Both of those are wrong. There's a balance between the two. Understand this. God is at work in us. See that 13th verse? Very true. But I am responsible to move in the direction that God calls me. So it's kind of like this. I'm to move toward obedience. So I choose to move toward obedience, and God empowers me to follow through. That's the idea. This is how we do good. And this is what God wants to see develop in us, that kind of commitment. So that's why here in this eighth verse, the Word of God says that Timothy was to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves. I like that phrase, careful to devote themselves. It has the idea of concentrating, of extending effort toward doing something, not approaching it half-heartedly, but truly giving it your best shot. But here's the beauty of Scripture. As I am careful to devote myself to these things, God has given me the Spirit of God that I might succeed. That's the understanding that we need to come to when it comes to obedience. Really, what we need to understand is we need to decide to do what is good. And here's why. Because it benefits people. Look at the last part of that eighth verse. 
These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Do you want your life to count? Do you want to benefit other people, whether they have become a follower of God or not? Implementing the things that God has said are good, depending on the Spirit of God to move you toward accomplishing that, brings you to the place to where you can actually be profitable, beneficial to those who are around you. And that's believers and unbelievers alike. Everyone can benefit from it. For unbelievers, understand this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, when you name the name of Christ, you are a representative. They can see someone live out the values of God. And what people want to see is reality. They want to see consistency. Now, I'm not saying that we'll be perfect. But what I'm saying is this. People will see glimpses of who God is and what He wants us to be and what they can become. God wants us to do good so that we will encourage unbelievers to come into the family of God. And that's something that Paul has brought out several times in the book of Titus. My behavior is a testimony to those around me. And they will consider following Christ because of that. We're also benefiting believers. Understand that you are probably an example to someone and you don't even know it. People look at what we're doing. And that's true particularly if you're a leader. They want to see if there's consistency, if we really are serving and following God, and they're looking to us for an example. And when we shine, we encourage them to move toward God in obedience. And when we don't shine, we discourage them and cause them great hurt and great harm. Doing good gives us an opportunity to be of use to God, to be profitable, to be encouraging people toward their spiritual growth. And understand this as well. As you practice doing what is good, you are a blessing to other people. You know, as a pastor, I know I've shared this before, but I'm amazed by the body of Christ and the good things that I see believers do for other believers and for unbelievers. And they do it for the sake of doing good to other people. They love it. They're inspired by it. They're encouraged by it. This is what God wants us to be and how God wants us to operate. Satan tells us the lie that, you know, you have to step outside of what God has established sometimes to do what's really good. That lie started with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden where Eve was told by the serpent that God doesn't really have your best interests in mind. And the boundaries that God has established are really hurting you rather than helping you. Eve bought into it. Adam bought into it. And people have been buying into it from generation to generation to generation. Understand this. God's moral boundaries were designed 
by the Creator. And when He calls us to do what is good, it is good. So as followers of Jesus, we have a guidebook as to what is good that we need to commit ourselves to following. God empowers us to do it, but we make the decision to move in that direction of obedience. It is a blend where we depend on Him, but we devote ourselves to being careful to do what is good. But then Paul talks about another group in this text where those who do what, are, what is good are, are described as profitable for everyone. Look at the ninth verse and look at what it says. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Now, do you notice the contrast between the end of the 8th verse and the ninth verse? When we do that which is good, it's excellent and it's profitable. When we divide, we are being useless and unprofitable. And I think that structure was set into place for a purpose. Paul is drawing a vivid contrast between two courses of life. The life that is lived for God and others and the life that is lived for self. We need to be obedient to God. But there are some who can lose perspective. And they begin to be people who cause division within the church. And understand this. Every church has a divider. Every family has that person that just stirs things up. You know when that little ember of a controversy starts, instead of running with water, they run with kerosene. And you... as they blow things up. This type of individual is destructive, cancerous, toxic in any group. Whether it's a committee, whether it's a church body, whether it's a family, whether it's a marriage, the divisive person is harmful. And as a body of believers, we need to understand that there are some people who are going to pursue fighting no matter what. And we're warned about that. Understand, the Word of God has an actual person, the Apostle Paul, writing to another actual person, Titus, probably about a situation that was actually going on in the church of Crete. For 2,000 years, this warning has stood in the eternal Word of God as something that as a church or as a family or as a group, we need to look out for and understand that we need to listen to the voice of God and avoid this kind of behavior. Now, when I started talking about the divisive people, probably everyone here thought, oh yeah, that's so-and-so, right? I'll bet you, immediately coming to your mind was a face of somebody that you look at and say, this person's divisive. Now, 
The purpose of this text, as I'm sharing it, isn't for you to pigeonhole somebody and say, yeah, they're a divider, they're terrible people. The purpose in my sharing it is a warning to all of us. Do I exhibit any of these attributes? And should I maybe adjust that and turn that over to God if I do? Okay? Don't look at other people during the next few moments. Look to yourself and ask yourself if this describes you. Notice that Paul is talking about a person who is divisive. Now, I want to define for you what divisive means. Divisive means a person who splits people into groups. The type of person, it's a word that actually carries with it the idea of being in a political party, being in a group where, where you try to pit others against others. It carries with it the concept of somebody who basically says, if you're with me, you're against them. That's the idea of a divisive person, okay? So we have to be careful that we're not that person. We have to be careful that we de-escalate the fight rather than escalate it. That's the message that we need to each take to ourselves. You know, in World War I, there's a tragic story of Henry Gunther. He was the last man to die on Armistice Day of all days when the war was supposed to be over. One minute before it officially was put into effect, Gunther ignored orders, affixed a bayonet to his weapon, and charged German machine guns. His sergeant told him, don't, stop. But he went anyway and ran headlong into the machine gun fire, and in an instant he was mowed down. Even as he was charging the Germans, the Germans were waving him off, saying, cut it out, armistice, let's end this. But he kept the fight going, and the result was tragic. In fact, his divisional record states, almost as he fell, the gunfire died away, and an appalling silence prevailed. You know, there are some people who will be driven toward a fight, just like Gunter. The fight could be over, but they run headlong. And that's the type of person that we want to avoid being, but it's also the type of person that we want to avoid connecting to because they will lead us into sin. So look at how this sin is described in this passage. Paul says, right at the beginning of the ninth verse, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Now, there are three descriptions that are going to be given to us of an unprofitable, divisive person. And the first description is they love foolish controversies. The idea behind this word is 
These are people who love philosophical arguments. Often their arguments generate much more heat than light. And as a result, division ensues. Many times our differences aren't over huge doctrinal matters. They're over ways of looking at things. And so we go into the conflict and we perpetuate our idea and we become competitive. I am more interested in seeing that I win the day and the argument than I am in listening and learning and finding the truth. All of us struggle toward that, don't we? We all like to think, I'm right, they're wrong. Right? And so we perpetuate an argument. We stir up these controversies. Some of them don't even have answers. And yet, we fight tooth and nail for something that can't even be definitively answered. What was going on at Crete was this. These were foolish controversies about genealogies. Now, they didn't have Ancestry.com back then. I get a kickback for that advertisement. Not really. (laughs) But what would happen is there were some who felt that if they could show a lineage in connection with some great Jewish leader, that by virtue of that lineage, they were more spiritual than other people. Now, we look at that and we say, oh, come on. I mean, really? But understand this, that we argue over things that are just as silly. We often get invested in things that, in the final analysis, just really don't matter. So what Paul is telling Titus to make sure that he stresses is all of us need to avoid these controversies. But then he goes on to the next one. And that's arguments and quarrels about the law. Arguments and quarrels about the law. Isn't it amazing how some people just love to argue? They live, they thrive on arguing with other people. It's, again, because of that competitive nature that we have. I will win the argument. I might lose the relationship, but doggone it, I'm going to win the argument, right? And that becomes the objective. You know, there's a story about a young rabbi who had a serious problem in his synagogue. During Friday services, half of the congregation stood for the prayers and the other half remained seated. And each side shouted at the other, you're doing it wrong. Don't you know you're supposed to stand when you pray? The other group, no, in reverence we sit when we pray. You've got it wrong. So this poor rabbi didn't know what to do. So he went to the 99-year-old rabbi who was in the nursing home. And he decided that he would settle the matter 
and ask him what the official church tradition was. Do we stand or do we sit when we pray? So he goes to the rabbi and he asks that question. And he says, Rabbi, was it the tradition of our congregation to stand during the prayers? And the rabbi said, no. Ah, the younger guy says. Then it was our tradition to remain seated during the prayers. And the rabbi said, no. And the young rabbi said, well, what is it? It's complete chaos right now. Half the people are standing, half the people are sitting, and they're yelling at each other during the service. And the rabbi said, yeah, that's the tradition. (laughs) We get into these arguments, and we get invested in them, and they serve no purpose but to divide and to harm and to hurt. We need to be people who avoid those arguments and then who really avoid the quarrel. A quarrel is a prolonged argument that just festers. It just sort of simmers under the surface and it causes us to become resentful and angry. A quarrel cannot be allowed to continue, whether it's in a home or in a group or in a church. It must be resolved. And so that's what the Word of God is warning about in this text for our lives, for the good of the church. These things are to be avoided. Why? Because they're unprofitable and useless. Isn't it amazing how We can get our eyes off of our objective when we get entrenched in these things. We forget about ministry. We forget about caring for that elderly parent when we are so enmeshed in controversy within our family that we're trying to lobby for our position. And in reality, there's something else going on. It's a power play, a disagreement. We can find it in a committee where I come in and I say, hey, I am driving my agenda. Everybody else back off. And when you have two that come into a committee like that, kablooey, it's going to blow up. These are the things that we're to avoid. But understand this. There are those who come into a church who will do these things, and they need to be stopped. And so as followers of Christ, we need to dissuade factious people from stirring up trouble. Look at what the 10th verse says. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him. Now this is a powerful verse when you think about it. Sometimes as groups of believers or as families, we don't want to stir anything up, so we back away, and a divisive person comes in, and they're going hard. Full steam ahead. Often the divisive person doesn't come in wearing a T-shirt saying, yes, I am here to divide. 
As a matter of fact, when we look at them, we'll say, wow, here's a really nice guy. They're so personable, so friendly. Everybody likes them. I'll tell you, politicians can be very friendly when it serves their purpose. So what happens when we discover that there is divisive activity associated with the individual? Well, number one, we try to restore them. Notice that 10th verse says, warn them the first time, the second time. They get two shots, right? That's the idea. When we see divisive behavior fostering those controversies, those quarrels, those arguments, the leadership is to pull the individual aside and say, you are hurting the body of Christ Cut it out. Okay? That's the first warning. We give them time to get it together. And if we see it persist, second warning. You're persisting in this sin without repentance. Cut it out. If it continues, then step three. It's a matter of church discipline. You know, it's amazing to me that churches get on board for church discipline when there's a moral failure. We see someone who steps outside what they're supposed to be doing morally, and many people jump on board and say, yeah, let's, let's discipline that person. But I'm going to share something with you. 35 years of ministry experience, and I've seen much more damage come from divisive people than people who have failed in morality. Churches are hurt and destroyed by divisive people. And that's why there's this warning. God detests divisiveness. Solomon wrote this, there are six things the Lord hates. Now, that's a strong word, isn't it? Seven that are detestable to him. I think detestable is even worse than hate. Look at what he hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that divides or devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates those things. So Paul's point, we should hate them too. Not the individual, but certainly the sin. Last point. We have a description of those who cause division within the family of God. Verse 11 says this, you may be sure that such a man is warped. Now this word warped is a strong word. It carries with it the idea of being twisted, distorted, out of whack, turned inside out. What it's saying about the individual and their thought process is they are so twisted that it's going to be near impossible to straighten them out. So it's better to not allow them to continue and to persist in their behavior 
than to subject a church body to their warped behavior. Look at the next one. They are sinful. You know, I have a stack of books on my desk, and here are some of the titles of the books. Well-intentioned dragons. Clergy killers. One of them has a funny title, When Sheep Attack. All of them are case studies, each one you know, probably about that thick, of pastors from all over the country sharing their encounters with divisive people and the harm that it brought to their ministry and to them personally. And so this is a struggle that has been going on for 2,000 years. It crosses denominational lines. It crosses socioeconomic lines. It is something that is perpetuated everywhere. You bring a group of pastors together, and I guarantee you're going to hear about that struggle. So the Word of God is telling us that this is a real situation, a real problem, and we need to be careful that we are not number one, that divisive person, but number two, that we don't wink at it and say, yeah, they're a real pain, and let it go, but that we take a stand. Last part, they are self-condemned. Now, that perhaps is the most unfortunate term of the three. To be self-condemned means that they are fully aware of what they're doing, but they do it anyway. Their consciences are seared. Paul wrote to Timothy about this when he described a group that he was dealing with. And that group, he said this about them. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. We can actually sear our consciences. And while initially we think maybe what I'm doing is wrong, as we pursue our course, that conscience becomes less sensitive. And as a result, it's not there anymore. We're self-condemned in the onset because we look and we say, hey, what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Maybe the ends justifies the means. That could be the rationalization. But in reality, it's hurtful, it's harmful, and it needs to be dealt with. Listen, I'm not going to end on this note. As believers, we have a choice. Will my life be profitable or unprofitable? We should all choose the former, that I will live a life that is profitable, useful for God and for others. But in order to pull that off, I have to pull self off the table. And then I have to depend upon the Spirit of God to move me in obedience's direction, making that decision to move in that direction myself. May I encourage you this morning to ask God to speak to you 
And if there's an element in your life where you're being divisive, confess it and forsake it right away. We have far more important things than any pet project or any idea that I have about how things should be. The unity of the body of Christ is more important than that. And by the way, I am not addressing an individual or a uh, group or, or anything that's going on in the church. This is just a warning that the Word of God has in this text that we're to look toward, okay? But we need to ask ourselves, am I that person? Is there an element in my life that leads into that? And I'll tell you, I wrestled with this myself as I prepared the sermon, as I looked at my life. I, I evaluated, I, I prayed about this. I said, God, is, is there any of this in me that needs to be confessed or forsaken? So I encourage you to do the same. That's the right way to approach a passage like this. There was that temptation to go and think about people in my past who have been difficult as I went through the text. But you know, the Holy Spirit said to me, stop. You look and you see if you have these elements in you. And that's when I listened. So my encouragement to you, do the same. Let's be people who are profitable, useful for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the warning that it is to all of us that any one of us can be a divisive person. If we lose perspective, as we start thinking selfishly, we can become warped and sinful and self-condemned. Let us avoid that outlook. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we conclude.